Hello and welcome back to the Hope Mindful Compassion Show. My name's Paul Garrigan. So we haven't done an episode now in over two years. So it's good to be back. We we were closed there for a long time due to you know the, the travel restrictions that were imposed due to the COVID outbreak. But now we're back fully open and up and running. And so to, to launch the new podcast, we have this interview with Alistair Morty, um, who's a writer and a speaker on addiction. And I think you guys will find this interesting. So during the interview, it started to rain quite heavily, about 15 minutes in. But hopefully it won't spoil your enjoyment too much. So without further ado, let's get into the interview. So Ali, thanks for doing this. So you've been here, coming here for the last few months, and you've been doing different groups. And I often get, you know, really enthusiastic feedback from the clients. And the class they particularly seem to be interested in is the one you do on neurobiology. Why, why do you think that one's particularly popular? Well, um, it gives an answer, I guess. It gives an answer to the condition. It's a, it's a bit like... When you go to the doctor, people say they don't like being diagnosed. They don't like this, this modern phenomena of over-diagnosis, over-medicalizing things, which is true, right? You know, to a certain extent, people are possibly over-diagnosed with conditions these days. Definitely, probably over-medicated in some situations, but there's another side to it, which if you think about it, if you're ill <laughs> and you have a mysterious complaint. An addiction is a very mysterious and baffling condition, right? We still don't fully understand it. But if you get some kind of an explanation as to um, what is wrong with you, it helps. So there's two sides to a diagnosis. One is, oh, oh dear, I'm, I'm an X or I'm XYZ. The other side to it is, ah, now I know what's wrong with me or at least to a, to a um, certain degree. And so there's, there's various different models, obviously, that can be used to explain addiction. Some of them slightly contradict each other. None of them are completely right. Um, but what they all do is, is give the person some kind of explanation as to why they do the crazy things that they do, which, of course, is one of the main characteristics of addiction, right? It's a particularly disturbing condition in that it makes you do crazy things. <laughs> so it kind of helps make yeah. people make sense of things. Yes. I, think so. I mean, you, you've kind of answered this already, but I'll, I'll kind of ask it anyway. So do we fully understand the neurobiology of addiction? Do we really understand what's going on with addiction? No. And what's more, that's not the only thing that would explain addiction. You know, anymore. So we have, I guess, to generalize a bit, uh, we have a trauma model of addiction, um, which is sort of childhood-based and uh, quite psychoanalytic. You know, you can find the roots of your addiction in your childhood. That would be the model that comes out of the ACE study, which was done in the 1990s, and has become uh, known as what I, I think you probably call uh, the trauma-informed movement, trauma-informed therapies. It's people like Gabor Mate and Gabor Mate and so on. And, and that is certainly one um, model of addiction, which is very popular and explains a lot for some people. Then you have a chemical imbalance model, which was also... Um, rising up at the same time as the ACE movement, or the ACE model, so ACE standing for Adverse Childhood Experiences, which later became Gabor Mate's trauma-informed model. At the same time as that, there was a kind of, in some senses, competing model, I suppose, um, that looked at neurobiology uh, and how we have
have certain chem chemical imbalances, and of course the big one that everybody talks about is dopamine deficiency or reward deficiency. So those are two what look like quite different models. Um, but actually, they're both quite deterministic mm. when you look at them. They're both saying, if this happens to you, then you will probably get addicted. And um, But it works for people, you know, and they can fit their life into those explanations. Now, This is very that, important, isn't it? Because, yes. I mean, if people want, you know, people, they want the right answer, the right yes. thing. I mean, what would you say if there's this, this kind of maybe what appears to be com conflicting yeah. ways of looking at things? That's a good question. And the first thing to say was, there's a good side, bad side to it. Um, if something works for you to explain why you're doing what you're doing, then grab a hold of it by all means. But beware of the danger that's inherent in that, called the narrative fallacy, which is that you're making a nice, neat story <laughs> out of a very complex thing, which is called your life, and another very complex thing, which is called addiction, which, as I've said, nobody really fully understands. Um, probably wiser than that would be to look at all of the models because they all make some kind of sense and consider the fact that they may all be playing a part. So it might be that you are chemically um, imbalanced. We are hopelessly inefficient at being able to track that or understand that right yes. now, regardless of what neuroscientists tell you. Because they, you know, really. a lot of it's based on fMRI, isn't it? Right, which is you know, it's an extremely complex reason why it doesn't really tell you that much. Which and it's a new science, isn't it? Relatively new science. Relatively new science. Um, as I understand it, it's just because a part of your brain is lighting up red in a very impressive way on a, on a brain scan, the, the next leap to that being able to explain behaviours is, is quite a difficult so, so this goes back to this kind of correlation, it's not the same as causation. Which is our nature, it's in our nature, mm. right, to make connections between things, which is great, um, but there's dangers in that too. So use it and beware of it, I would say, any, any model of addiction. Um, so what would be safer, do you think, to think of these things as maps? They're maps, they're, they're, they're directions. Most of all, I think, is if you followed them, would the outcomes be good? Mm. That's probably the right question to ask. If I followed the model that childhood trauma informed my addiction, will I wind up better off? Does it have answers for me? Same with the neurobiological model. Same with the generic disease model, which is pretty much the same thing as AA and NA. If I follow that, does it have solutions for me? And this is pragmatism. Yes, pragmatism is exactly it. If it has a pragmatic answer for you and it works, it's not harming anybody else, it's, benefit, it's taking you further forwards, then, then dig into it. Um, I think the, But you know you're going to have people that's going to go, no, 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 Ali, I want the truth. What's true? I want what's true. It's a good argument. And, uh, you know, it's a bit like the argument for God, isn't it? Is, is it best to be stupid um, and happy or correct and nihilistic? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'd probably, myself, I'd plump for the former. Yes. I think, and try and make my, and try and minimise my stupidity in doing that. Yeah. But, but other people may choose to be in full possession of Cold hard truth as they see it, and and um, but not deluded. But how do they know they're not deluded? Um, so I think pragmatism is a better way of looking at it, um, because of course getting a genuine result in your life is a truth. Yes. Right. Perhaps it's the only truth that you can really monitor very well. Well, it works. <laughs> well, when you get when you stop using drugs, for example, and are somewhat happy, that is a truth. Yes. Um, you know it. It's direct and experiential. Cannot be denied. Um, 
the science, the different models that explain things, um, theories and beliefs are just that. Yes. The theories and beliefs. So that, I think, is, at the end of the day, um, the best advice that I, that I could give, and certainly what I do. Is it's actually very much tied in what I teach in regards to Buddhism, and this idea that all perceptions are empty. Like, so all ways of looking at things are empty. None of them are ultimately true, but, mm. but that's not the, the question isn't which is true, it's which works. Yes. And which works for you. Exactly. So that's, that's a question that you, you get with, say, for example, people these days seem to think that you hear people say things like there are no moral facts, and then they relate to Buddhism in the teaching, teachings of Buddha, just as one example. Um, but anyone who lives in Southeast Asia, will, as you know, will tell you, or if you observe, say, Thai Buddhists going about their practice, um, one, of the th one of the concepts they have is sila, or morality. Um, for them, uh, abstaining from sex, for example, and mind-altering substances and things like that, um, is moral behavior. They're quite clear about that. Mm. The, the word in uh, Pali means morality. Um, but of course, it's a platform or a vehicle to the ultimate truth, which may be that there are no ultimate truths. Yeah. <laughs> I think I mean, that, one of the things I, I find interesting about Buddhism, and I, I don't even consider myself a Buddhist, mm. I just use the technology, yes. is this idea of a raft. Yes. That the teachings is a raft to get you from one place to another place. Yes. When you get to the other side of the river, you no longer need the raft. The raft yes. is only ever a vehicle. Yes. Like right. you said there. Yes. Moral, moral relativism is a luxury belief. So some people can afford to have it. I couldn't. Mm. I needed a raft um, to get somewhere. And that raft, the best raft that could be constructed for me, as far as I could see, did entail some things that would sound like moral injunctions if they weren't being used for a very good purpose. And I decided that the purpose was a very good one, yeah. which was to stop using drugs and then be better off and everyone who's around me be better off as a result. And the only raft that I could really construct that didn't have a lot of leaks was rather moral sounding. Of course, yes. I didn't live up to it that well always, but I did live up to it better than I had previously. And so it was things like abstaining from drugs. So whereas you might have models of addiction that say, oh, we don't need to abstain from drugs. And they say, fair enough, great, explain your reasoning. And their reasoning often comes down to, because it's, it's moral language. Well, that's not a good enough reason for me. Yes. It has not deterred me from <laughs> considering that it might be really effective to behave more morally than I was. Um, it's just a word at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, so... This is really interesting. Can I ask you something? Do you think it was important for you to kind of know that it was kind of just a raft rather than some kind of absolute truth? Because, you know, some people can kind of come at their way of looking at things and oh, this is the absolute truth, it's how things are. Do you think it somehow gave you an advantage or the fact that you kind of saw it, is just, this is just a way of maybe looking at things that's very helpful for me? No, quite the opposite. I totally believed it was an absolute truth. <laughs> and I think that rather helps me in following it. Yeah. You know, so again, again, even at the end of the day right there, no, I mean, having this wonderfully sophisticated understanding of the universe along Buddhist perspectives that everything's empty in the end, not helpful to me in the least when I was originally a recovering addict. Being um, uh, possessed of beliefs which may be irrational, um, uh, completely... Um, Almost, when I got into recovery, so this is one of the things yes. that you hear, AA is a cult, um, NA is a cult. Yeah, fantastic also. If it wasn't, 
wouldn't be very effective. <laughs> of course, it's yeah. not a cult. If it is a cult, it's a really relaxed one because you can go home at the end of the night. Yeah. So of course we laugh because we know that it isn't a cult and things like that. You know, they're not cults. Um, but if they are a little strict sounding, possibly. How's about this? Maybe that's what we needed. Um, and I, I was no, I had no sophisticated ideas about the fact that my beliefs uh, might just be rafts to take me to ultimate truths. The, at the end of the day, my ultimate truth is not using again and not offending the universe in any terrible way. Yes. Because when I do, it will, I will feel it. Yeah. But do you feel that kind of ultimate truth has changed over the years? Yeah. 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 I've, I've realized that um, there are many ways, um, you know, to spin a gap. And um, I've had to shed some of my uh, prejudices, you know, um, so perhaps for, for me specifically it might be things like love that fellowships are the only way. That inflexible attitude probably actually helped me at the beginning. Mm. Being fundamentalist probably did help me get out of a hole, as it does for young men in many different ways. Yes, yeah. Fundamentalist. Because we don't want to break the magic. Right, it, 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 it rallies behavior very powerfully, right? And if it was more subtle message, perhaps it wouldn't. Mm. Um, but of course, as you get older, um, probably what you should be doing as you develop is, is risking casting off some of that certitude and um, at, at, to the precise degree that you can get away with it. Yes. Right. It may destabilize you, and if yes. it does, then don't do it. Stick with your beliefs as long as they're not harming anybody else, and they are working for you. Um, but yeah, me personally, they've become more nuanced than they were, obviously, 20 years ago. Yeah. So, you, you already mentioned um, dopamine. Mm. And there seems to be a kind of lot of confusion about dopamine in relation to, to, to addiction. Mm. Can, you, can you explain the role of dopamine? And why do we, why do we specifically talk so much about dopamine? Mm. Yeah, well, it, it arises out of research that was coming about at pretty much the same time as the ACE study, which was informing the trauma model. So as I say, this is kind of biological psychiatry versus de developmental psychology, if you like. And the biological psychiatry research and model that was developing came out of, the, as far as I understand, at least from reading the literature, a 1988 study by two Italian researchers kind of kicked it off. And they found that all drugs of abuse release dopamine at the nucleus accumbens, which is a part of the midbrain that um, when dopamine molecules are released from the BTA and they go up, mesolimbic dopamine system and they hit the shell of the nucleus accumbens, you will feel uh, rewarded, but although not necessarily pleasure. Because mm, people often say dopamine is pleasure. Yes, so, so as any addict will know, they're, they're acting out of their addiction, whether it be heroin or sex or whatever it is, is not always pleasurable, especially when they're at the latter end of their addictive career. It's not as pleasurable as it was, but it's still rewarding. Yeah. So does the... So, so actually, so... And is that change? Is how, how is dopamine related to tolerance? Well, to cut to the end of the story, we need to fill in the bits in between. Yeah, please, in yes, the sorry. end, you, you would come to the conclusion following this argument that you weren't addicted to drugs, you were addicted to shoring up midbrain dopamine. That's what all addicts, that's the common denominator. According to the neurobiological model, yeah. that is the common denominator in all addictions. They including things, process addictions. Including process addictions. Sub, all substance addictions and process addictions are raising midbrain dopamine zone. 
Now, the predominant model that came out of that early research, because if you think about it, back in the 80s, there were all sorts of other neurobiological models saying things like, people who are very anxious abuse Valium, and people who are sad or have had a lot of trauma or perhaps angry abuse heroin and alcohol, because the endorphins that are raised endogenously can, um, by using alcohol and opioids are helpful in the way that they sedate that anger. And, you know, people who are go, 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 are drawn to cocaine and amphetamines. And if you think about it, it's kind of... It's, yes, on one level it makes sense, and on another sense it's very crude. Yes. So that, that theory, you have specific addictions to specific things because you are unique in a specific way, was kind of thrown out by the, the dopamine model, which was saying... Was no, it thrown out or just kind of fell in the background? It fell into the background mm. because the dopamine model made a lot more sense because it was saying that, no, underneath the pleasure... Um, or the specific job that a specific drug is doing. Valium's making you calmer, herring's making you more euphoric, cocaine's making you more focused. Underneath that is a, the actual common denominator, which is a feeling of reward and raised midbrain dopamine tone. And it lies behind people who abuse heroin, and it also lies behind people who, who have food disorders and sexual compulsivity disorders. So out of that basic research, um, researchers that found that dopamine might be the common denominator, they grew other theories. One of which was very famous is Ken Bloom's theory of reward deficiency. So Ken Bloom found a gene variant for the DRD2 dopamine receptor gene, which basically meant that possibly there are people who are born with a dearth, a lack of um, receptor sites for one type of dopamine which would result in them feeling unrewarded because mm. they haven't got enough midbrain dopamine going on. Um, lots of addicted people identify with that yeah. because they feel like they were ill before they started using. Of course, the trauma model would say it's because they were traumatized and they've got PTSD or something like that. But the dopamine model would say, no, it's because they haven't got enough midbrain dopamine. Well, what helps you to raise dopamine? Drugs, you know, cannabis, alcohol... <laughs> And all the all the things that become addictions. So that's and would that account the, for the difference in like why some people are are attracted to certain drugs, or is it just is almost irrelevant? No, it's irrelevant. That, that model, one of the things it does do is make the specific drug of choice irrelevant. Which again, as most addicts will know, that is true. While they may prefer their drug of choice today, if they put on a desert island and giving given no other dopamine enhancer other than another drug, they would swiftly become addicted to that drug. Yes, yeah. And when people voluntarily stop you uh, acting out of addiction, in their recovery, they often flip into other secondary addictions. So cigarette smokers become overeaters, and people who are in AA may get addicted to porn, and so on and so forth. So it explains so, a lot. So it explains a lot. But again, is it a narrative fallacy? You know, is, it, is the story too neat? Yes. And I guess the, answer, the ultimate answer to that is, well, it has to be, because life is so complex. Yes. Right? Um, but it... It is a really, really compelling model. It's one that's kind of been forgotten. It's one that I teach a lot because the zeitgeist at the moment is one of trauma causes everything yes. in mental health. And particularly if the trauma model is really rampant, you know. And there are aspects to it that are legit. Um, but also people should consider that their neurobiology or their inherent uh, personality. Well, let's just dig into that for a second. I mean... What could you see as the kind of weakness in the in the trauma model? Well, first and foremost, 
uh, the fact that the study that it came from was very, very weak. So, and the fact that it is absolutely unreconstituted Freudianism. So Vincent Politi, who ran the original A study, was definitely a fully paid up Freudian. And, you know, Freud arguably did a lot to put psychology on the map, but do we take Freud's ideas seriously anymore? No, not really. Um, apart from perhaps the broad and rather obvious point that your childhood can be quite important in the formation of your adult personality, yes. right? But you don't have to be a genius to worry about it. Well, we don't need Freud. The kind of Jesuits have kind of worked yeah, it out. Everybody right? said that. Yeah. You know, that it's not, Freud did not discover that. So the A study was saying that um, what, what he found, Vincent Politi, was that he ran an overweight program mm. in Kaiser Permanente, which is a private hospital group in California. And he found that uh, people who were losing weight immediately left the program, mm. which was sad because he wanted them to lose more weight. They, they were leaving when they were doing well. So he looked at their medical records and they were strange. They didn't conform to the ordinary patterns of obesity. They didn't put on weight steadily through their life. So he even more confused. So he called a lot of them in for interview to ask them to help him get to the bottom of it. And a lot of them reported sexual abuse. So already we've got a kind of Freudian model here, so yes. it can mean two things. Either him and Freud were very wrong and they were looking for something and found it, or they were both right. And in fact, Freud was right. Yeah. Because of course, Freud's idea is the majority of adult mental illness comes from sexual abuse and childhood. That is what he said. Which kind of let, let it split between him and Carol Jung, didn't yeah, it? Totally. Right, right him and everybody. Yeah. Because it is blatantly kind of ridiculous. It can't, can't be that... Um, this is what we think. We yes. think, God forbid, can it really be that pervasive? And most of us will at least want to think, no. And probably it isn't. Right? Didn't this kind of come up in the, in, wasn't the 70s, like the, all of those kind of uh, recovered memories and stuff like that? So, so the evidence for hidden trauma or repressed memories of, of tra truly traumatic events is very thin on the ground. Mm. For very obvious reasons, people tend not to forget moments of sheer and sudden terror that affect them for the rest of their lives. They, just because they dissociate from it, don't talk about it, or don't want to talk about it, that doesn't mean it's repressed. Yes. And PTSD is one of the most validated disorders in the psychiatric sphere. It is hugely operationalized and hugely well understood. Yes. And the idea that you can have a trauma when you don't remember it is not valid. Yes. I, I, this, this is according to the psychiatric profession. I, I often will hear people say this that they kind of will say things like, "I believe I have some undiscovered trauma." Yes. I don't know what it is, but I have this sense that something bad happened to me. Yes. Well, that's been very much encouraged, most likely, by the clinical psychologist or counsellor. So you think that's coming basically from society? Yeah, it's coming from the trauma model, which is not just prevalent in psychology; it's prevalent in society. Freud's ideas are hugely influential in Western society. And hidden trauma is one of those, frankly, rather dodgy concepts that is almost ubiquitous. Everybody, or really unlikely people, will say, well, yeah, I kind of believe in that. There's very little evidence for it. Mm. Okay, so back to the point about the A study. So Vincent Felitti, like Freud, believed this is what he was seeing. And to some extent, his um, obese patients were reporting this way. So he came up with the hypothesis, rather like Freud's, that his overweight clients were using their weight 
as a protective mechanism against sexual predation. So in other words, if they started to lose weight, that was very threatening for them, and they put the weight on again. Now it's a great hypothesis, right? So he, he then ran the A study in tandem with the Center for Disease Control to do a much bigger study on 17,000 people, predominantly middle class as it happens, with private health insurance, and they got the same results, but they asked a much wider range of questions. Mm. Ten questions. Not sexual abuse. In, in addition to sexual abuse, they asked obviously about physical abuse, but also emotional and um, physical neglect, divorce in the parents, was there any mental illness in your nuclear family, was there substance abuse in your nuclear family? So they asked questions about abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. Yes. And they found a huge step-by-step -step increase between those 10 ACEs and addiction and other illnesses in adulthood, illnesses like bronchitis and cancer. So off the top of my head, I think it found something like four or more with the cut-off point. People who had four or more ACEs were much more ill, yes. generally, as adults. And they would have figures something like this, twice as likely to be smokers, five times more likely to be alcoholics, um, 49 times more likely to be injecting drug users if they had seven, eight, or nine ACEs. Mm. So it was what's called a dose-response relationship between an adverse childhood and illnesses, including addiction, but also other illnesses that come out of addiction yes. in adulthood. Right. And now you go and look at the questions. Right, so to define sexual abuse, did anybody touch you when you were younger in a way that you felt was inappropriate? Okay, now that may mean something or it may not. Yes. Did a parent ever swear at you in a way that made you feel afraid or hurt? So if your parents swore at you when you were young and you felt hurt, you personally interpret it and you feel like yes. you were hurt, then you've been emotionally abused. So it sounds hard to get a low score. It's very hard to get a low score. Well, here's the, here's the crux of it. Here's how you put it in clinical terms. It relies on recall data. Mm. Recall data is notoriously... Um, Unreliable. Now, in the past, it was unreliable because no one would tell you anything because yes. they were so stigmatized. So you wouldn't get anything out of them. They'd recall nothing. Now we've got the opposite problem, arguably. No, it reminds me of. Recall all sorts of things. It rem <laughs> reminds me of, you know, like the uh, people like mind readers, they use cold reading. It's very much like a spiritualist medium. Yeah, just say um, something very general. <laughs> what they do is they throw out uh, a hook into the water mm. and see if a fish comes up. That's the cynical view of it. Yes. Now, of course, I'm not entirely cynical of it, but... If you were being rigorous, you would say that. Recall data is not reliable. Um, A, because they might just not remember it properly. B, because these days, I would say it's not exactly controversial to say that these days people, a lot of people do wear a difficult childhood as a, almost as a badge of honour, so they might exaggerate it. Um, you know, there's all sorts of reasons why recall data is not necessarily reliable. So mm -hmm. the ACE study, a lot of critics of the ACE study would say that some of the categories are virtually meaningless in that they, the other thing they do is they equate vastly different things as though they were somehow equivalent. Okay, Can you so, give an example? Uh, an example would be mental illness in the household. Um, it doesn't ask specific questions. So that could mean, um, obviously there's a very great difference between having a mum who's a bit depressed and a dad who's floridly schizophrenic. Yes. Right, so it's, it, it's, and it's up to you, the respondent, to d decide which. So, but either way you have grown up with mental illness in the household. And it's 
it's inferred in the A study that that then has damaged you. And that's the final problem. So, so would you say the problem is basically is more the A study and the questions that are used rather than the idea of trauma? That, no, that was the first problem. There is then a problem with the hyperbole and what's called concept creep mm. around trauma that arose out of that. And the A study set the tone. Right. Now, the A study and Vincent Felitti, um, their movement was actually quite sensible in comparison to what's come on since. We call those the ACE movement. The original ACE movement is mostly medics and doctors of a psychoanalytic persuasion who were really quite well-meaning and really very good, you know, very competent mm. people um, and well-meaning. Um, I would argue that since then it's gotten, uh, gotten a lot more complex and a lot more political. Yes. So after the ACE movement led by Felitti and so on, who were really just doing epidemiological research and trying to um, get more funding taken from things like drug eradication programs, like burning down cocaine plantations in Colombia, to um, being put in poor communities in, in Newark or New Jersey or New York or whatever. And so that you, if you, the idea obviously being that if you created a better environment for kids, they wouldn't grow up to be addicts and have organic diseases. Um, so it was a really worthy cause and probably a lot in it, just not as much as they... Not as clear a link, I don't think, yeah. as they said there was. Uh, but here's the problem. After that, we developed another movement, which is called the Ace Aware movement. Now, that was much more politically motivated because it was taken up much more by social work departments. It grew wider than just the fiction mm. and started to enter university departments. Why do you think that happened? It happened at, at the beginning of the 2000s. No, but why? Why? Um, because the language and... Um, politicization that was occurring in social work um, university departments and re research departments of counseling, psychotherapy and social work were becoming more um, politically active. You know, the 1990s were not particularly active. The 1980s and 1990s it was like traditional labor movement and all yeah. that sort of thing. By the 2000s it's turning much more into identity politics and that sort of thing. So it's about the right idea at the right time. Right, so that marries very nicely with things like studies that prove that oppression and, and um, poverty in childhood yeah. cause, cause um, health problems in adulthood. It, it fits the narrative, mm. right? Um, so it became a little bit more politicized and, and they call that the ACE Aware movement. So here's an example of how it was used badly. So Social workers, say government, uh, local government authorities in England, say, started promoting ACE awareness. Mm. Part of which involved doing things like taking school kids, uh, taking people in rehabs, um, taking people who are undergoing training to become yes. a social worker, and, yeah. and asking, putting them through the ACE study questionnaire to find out, to inform them about how many ACEs they would have, yeah. and how this might make them an addict or explain their current addictions. Now, this is unethical for numerous reasons. This kind of reminds me mm. of, you know, those questions, are you an alcoholic? Yes. Because I, I remember as a, reading them as a kid, but everyone I knew kind of got the, the score saying there's a high likelihood they were an alcoholic. And these yeah, are people they're, they're, they're so universal as to be all the most meaningful. Yeah. So that, as we've already seen, the A study... Sorry for I being mean, for... I mean, the A study grew into a plethora of other, other studies, yeah. which were, if anything, more, much less rigorous. Right. Because their aims were blatantly political to begin with. Um, and they tried to equate um, childhood trauma, somewhat sensibly on the outside of it, 
uh, with things like oppression and trauma and various types of political injustices, which, if you think about it, makes sense, because if the original Kaiser study group were mostly middle class, and they were still pretty ill and had lots of mm. addictions, and how much more are you going to have from an uh, inner-city cohort, yes. right? And, uh, but here's the funny thing. Mostly they didn't find more. They found about the same, and in some cases slightly less. So, you know, the added complications of poverty, gang warfare... Um, racial injustice and things didn't actually seem to increase the ACEs. They're about the same as the original predominantly white middle class cohort, mm -hmm. right? Which was an interesting finding. Nevertheless, um, the ACE tool, if you want to call it that, the ACE questionnaire started to be used inappropriately. Mm. Now, here's the thing you can't give it to individuals and infer anything from it. It's not deterministic at an individual level because, of course, you could have 10 out of 10 ACEs, but have a huge amount of protective, other protective factors for addiction, but even perhaps some genetic protective, yes. protective factors. So you could, in theory, have 10 out of 10 aces and be just fine. And someone else, in theory, could have zero aces and be a really bad addict. Course, so yeah. giving that questionnaire to people and insinuating that it can somehow divine whether in future they'll be an addict, which if they're a kid, think about how unethical that is. Mm. Oh my God, you've got to be an addict. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, really, you need to debrief them after that, right? Probably better, don't do it with them in the first place. So it, it started to get misused. The ACE, the ACE Aware movement really abused the ACE findings. Mm. So now you get into the late 2000s and you have the rise of several best-selling books like Gabor Mate's Hundred Ghosts, which really takes this idea of trauma, which by now has been seriously equivalized with adversity because the ensuing ACE studies use the word trauma a lot more explicitly. Now, the word trauma is controversial. In the background, there was another battle going on in the psychiatric profession between classic PTSD, which has defended its diagnosis, which says a life-threatening event, a sudden event of terror, an event where you were sure you were going to die. Mm. That is what causes visceral physical symptoms of PTSD. Then you had another wing of psychiatrists, probably much more left-leaning, who were a bit angry about that, and they wanted trauma to mean lots of other things. So we have complex like PTSD. Complex trauma was the, was the diagnosis that was put forward. It was found when they tested it that you could pick up all complex trauma with the normal PTSD test. So you didn't need a new complex trauma test. But what complex trauma was trying to do was, say, was to say that you don't need a sudden, life-ending, terrorizing situation to be traumatized. But it, it had another agenda, which is to say things that, which upset you, we can now call trauma. This would be my, my yes. argument, um, indeed the argument of an increasing amount of people now. Now, that's okay if you want to be inclusive and and bringing more people, people's issues to be taken more seriously. Because that clearly was its goal. Yes. Let's use a scary word to help it raise attention for us about these marginalised groups. Fine. But it's not the way to go about it. But what are the yes. people that might say to you, like, when I look at things that way, when mm. I kind of use this trauma model, mm. it actually helped me. Yeah. If someone says that. Yeah, and it does. I, I think here would be my... Because you said at the beginning, didn't you, that you know, making sense of something is such a great thing you can do I for think, people. I think it does work. Here, I think it has to be um, deployed in exactly the right place. Yeah. Here's the best place, that, as far as I, in my experience, for things like psychoanalysis. That would be psychotherapy. Yeah. When I say psychoanalysis, most psychotherapy is really Freudian in the sense that it's digging into your past. 
to try to find answers for the present. Yes. Right. So that's really useful in one way. Usually before you go to addiction treatment. It's useful before you decide Way before. to really get a Because it won't take you anywhere. But it will get rid of a lot of your frustration. It's like hitting a punch bag. Mm. And hey, hitting a punch bag is really useful, man. If you're in a really bad mood and you might hurt yes. somebody. Yeah. So don't deny the, the cathartic potential of counselling and psychotherapy. And, and indeed, the Freudian idea of somebody finally taking your hurts and upsets from your childhood and taking them seriously yes. and not telling you that you're an idiot or that you're weak for feeling that way. Finally, somebody's validating you, which is, you know, really good. But um, what those of us who've been very involved in addiction treatment would say about addiction specifically, this might not be the case for other mental mm. health disorders, but specifically for addiction, because it's so serious, because you are, you are, going to be the cause of trauma. Mm. You are most likely going to do, do things that are bad when you're under the influence of drugs. Things that will destroy you, you'll never be able to come back from. Yes. Imagine running over a bunch of kids when you're drink driving. You don't come back from that stuff. This is serious stuff. We need to get in and help us, help the person bring the addictive behavior to an end so that they can yeah. grow. And what we found is that the more psychoanalytic approach of Digging into the past and understanding our clients and understanding why they're hurt, it doesn't necessarily help to get them clean. It's, a, it's the first bit that helps people have trust you. Yes. But isn't the yes. problem is that that's often why people come to a place like this wanting to talk about it? And they will do. Every rehab will do psychoanalysis, yes. right? Which, of course... It's kind of like the, what the client kind of gives you. Or, or Absolutely. Or what they expect to give. You have to do talk therapy. It's got to be part of the mix. But then there's a behavioral approach. So the opposite approach of the psychoanalytic approach would be the behavioral mm. approach. And in most rehabs in the world, you have both. You have a psychotherapeutic approach that says, tell me what happened to you. And then you have a behavioral approach, like 12 Steps, NA, Alcoholics Anonymous, CBT, which says, yeah, we know what happened to you, or whatever, but what are you going to do to change the behavior going forward? It's like problem-focused to solution-focused. You need both, clearly. Yeah. I mean, some people might not need the, the psychotherapeutic approach, but maybe they came from an idyllic background. Yeah. Most of us don't. And so it helps, if nothing else, then you form a bond with a therapeutic professional. Yeah. I mean, this is maybe a bit controversial for us to talk about it, but is there a possibility that maybe rehabs are somehow to blame for this, for creating this sense that we need to deal with your past and get your past sorted. No, it's psychotherapy that's, that's created it. Rehabs use psychotherapy as one element of mm. what they do. Now, this, is, this was Vincent Felitti's recommendations after the ACE study, was that we should rip up the rule book of things like rehabs and just do psychotherapy. Right, yeah. Because it's all from your childhood, right? Therefore, it makes sense. Yes. But it does, if you follow that argument, apart from it's not all about your childhood. You might have genetic antecedents to your addiction that are mixing with a difficult childhood. Your childhood doesn't need to be war-torn, a war zone, to have upset you and made you somewhat dysfunctional as an adult. Of course not. Right. So you need the psychotherapy, but you also need the behavioral change techniques, yes. which arguably really are done rather better by groups like AANA than they are psycho traditional psychotherapy. Yes. So rehabs have always enshrined things like 12 steps, and latterly things like mindfulness as a different approach, as a, as a, More solution com a, a complementary solution focus, yeah. to go with the problem focus. 
and re almost all rehabs, apart from the early TC days, the therapeutic communities, which was you will do what you do, bootstrap therapy. Yes. That was bootstrap therapy. The most, even most 12-step orientated rehabs have a mixture of a little bit of tough love in the 12-step mode, a little bit of complete non-talk therapy, like mindfulness, and a little bit of talk therapy. Mm. And that is the mo modality mix that seems to work the best. Yes. Most rehabs these days run with. And on what basis are you saying <coughs> that? Experience and yeah. seeing the outcome. But is so. there any kind of research to, to back <coughs> that up? Well, you've got the project project match, which everybody quotes um, from the 80s, I think, which found that MI, motivational interviewing, which is it's not really a behavioural therapy, but it's um, a harm minimisation focused mm. Um, form of open interviewing. So you, you meet the person where they're at and you roll with the resistance. So it's a very non-confrontational therapy. But again, it has a specific job, which is to bring people in from the cold yes. and, and get them to trust somebody so that they can avail themselves of help. So it's really brilliant for that. Yeah. But by the time that the person is realizing they have an addiction problem and they do trust professionals and their peers enough to sit in a residential community for months, treating their addiction, then probably they're past that point and you, they can be challenged a bit more and they need to be challenged and in most cases, as you know, we'll ask for it. Yes. You know, um, most addicted people know that they're part of the equation. It's not all been done to them. Yes. Um, so at that point, MI becomes less effective and 12 steps comes into the fray and, in, and 12 steps showed up quite well on Project Match. Yes. So I think it was MI, 12 steps and CBT that had relatively similar outcomes. Um, but hey, at the end of the day, it's what works for you. The studies can only tell yeah, us. I just want to ask you something, because I remember I, I, I don't hear very much about it, and there's probably a very good reason, but I remember it was this kind of movement, kind of seeing alcohol abuse, drug abuse as more of a choice, this kind of, kind of more of a choice idea. Yes. What are your feelings about that kind of model? Well, that's the harm reduction model, yeah. which is the antithesis of the absolute model. So there are areas where they can complement and where they shouldn't probably be um, aggravating each other. Um, so, for example, harm reduction started because there were older heroin addicts yes. who were just never, ever going to get clean. Yeah. And of course, it was cruel, considered cruel by a society that um, does deliver Medicare for you know all of its citizens um, to leave them injecting illicit drugs of varying quality with dirty needles. Yes. Or, indeed, to leave them injecting at all, and so they brought in methadone as a possible opioid replacement therapy, and then we started giving out pain needles and things like this. So the aim is not the same about abstinence. Mm. But over the years that grew, uh, partly because of funding, um, and the harm reduction model grew, and I'd argue to some extent started to stand on the toes of the abstinence model. So to some extent they stand on each other's toes, though they need, they need yeah. to. Um, and actually when you look at recovery, absolutely. So that's really just a form of harm reduction because, as you know, you can get sober and stop drugs, be abstinent from drugs, but not be well. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, You've got more work to do, yeah, right? Yeah. So we could look at recovery as just the, really just harm reduction. Yes. Yeah, one of the things you need to, need to do to reduce harm is stop using drugs. Yes. <laughs> if you can't, is the idea that you could be given replacement drugs by the government a good idea? Well, it probably is in terms of preventing the spread of blood-borne disease uh, mm. viruses. Um, but maybe it's not 
the best morally they said. But, but what about the argument? So say what you know in Holland you were giving people beer for doing what so those who are kind of you know considered probably considered maybe hopeless alcoholics, yes. they were actually kind of giving them beer in in, in for like doing things like cleaning the streets. Yes, well that's and one uh, of the arguments was that if you could kind of help them build up their self esteem, that maybe then they'd be in a position where they would be more willing to stop a book. Perfect example. So this is what California's harm reduction model is not doing, no. and what Holland's harm reduction model, which is still incredibly liberal, is doing. Yeah. Californian um, liberal uh, drug policy advocates will quote Holland, the Netherlands, endlessly as an example of how wonderful it is. But they're not. They're comparing apples with oranges, because in Holland they practice contingency management. In yes. other words, you, Mr. Addicted Person, will receive all the help the state can give you, mm. but you've got to give us something. And to which super progressive liberals mm. will start screaming, that's victim blaming. No, it's the kindest thing to do, because as you just said, their results have been fantastic. What they find is that, lo and behold, street homeless men, many of whom have been in the army and stuff, love being useful. Yes. <laughs> so what... Um, super progressive Californian harm reduction advocates are missing there is that kindness is not always the cure. Yes. People are so called victims, and they may be genuine victims, aren't necessarily wanting just a big barrel of kindness. They might be wanting to be useful or wanting to be taken seriously or themselves. So these are the potential pitfalls of harm reduction. Mm. Great at stopping the spread of blood borne viruses, perhaps not great. At, at raising the morale of street homeless men, for example, yes. by just doing everything for them. And Holland, being super smart liberals as they are, they realised this and they mixed it nicely with some quite tough love characteristics. So this is what's needed. You know, 12 steps is a little bit 12, uh, tough love. Harm reduction is quite sensible epidemiologically. You know, it, it, it can help us to stop the spread of diseases. Mm. It's practical. Is there a place where they can meet? Well, certainly. Harm reduction initiatives might get people off the street and get them into some kind of services. But then, hopefully, they might progress on to becoming abstinent and no yes. longer being on a methadone program. That would be the ideal. But, of course, they, as we started this whole conversation, they split off into camps that are antagonistic towards each other. And at the end of the day, underneath that, it's often things like, that are totally inappropriate, like political beliefs yeah. or a desire to get more funding. And those have no place in healthcare. Yes. Yeah. There's some, I kind of want to change the topic slightly. It's kind of coming around in a circle, actually. So it's back to this idea of the disease model. Mm. Do, you, do you feel yourself that the disease model is relevant or appropriate mm. or the best we have? Mm. Um, the, pr the problem with it is um, it's impossible at the moment for anyone to validate or invalidate it, really, or very different. Or does it do any, does it actually do anything? Is it it even does do something, and here's how it does do something, is when you use it as an allegory. Right, okay, That's when it tell works. us more about that. Right, so this is what AA have always done. In fact, they had an even more bizarre analogy, allegory, um, of it. They called it an allergy, not a disease. Mm. Which is actually even better. If we, if we start from the point that this is uh, a heuristic or something, yes. it's something that helps us to understand something. It doesn't have to be listed. So it's another true. kind of map. It's a map. Um, and the idea that alcoholics have an allergy was fantastic. And of course, one, can't, one cannot imagine that someone as intelligent as Bill W. literally believed that. He might have thought maybe science will discover that it is something like an allergy mm. later, but 
probably not. It was a, an analogy, an algorithm. It was designed to help you think about your addiction in a way that made sense to you yes. and then took you somewhere. And looking at addiction as an analogy is a great idea because as you, it affects a slightly better model than, than disease. Mm. Yes. Because something, if you do a certain thing, you'll break out in a rash in a way that's not good. <laughs> so yes. someone who has a traditional al norm analogy will break out in a rash. Yes. An addict will break out in bad behaviour, because that's how the common joke goes. That's why it's an allergy. Yes. You take the alcohol and then you break out in a rash of bad behaviours. Yes. Right? But oh, it's, people can get their heads around it. It's funny, it makes sense, and it's bloody true. So that's how it's useful. The disease model is not stupid and something to be thrown away and so on, just because the neurobiology departments and the trauma-informed psychologists are arguing about whether mm. it's childhood development or a biological disease. I mean, I mean as far as the way I was thinking about it, when we use kind of this idea of disease, I mean, people suggest you go to doctors to get mm. a fix. It's, mm. it's a kind of the medical profession's job to fix Right. Diseases. So, but I mean, it yes. doesn't seem to me that the medical profession have done quite a good job. No. Well, scientific arguments for and against the disease model. For, um, the argument for, it could be defined as a disease because it's all semantics. I'll tell you a common disease that you see a lot around. It's called a black eye. Mm. A black eye is a disease. It performs to the definition of a disease. It has a specific location. It has a specific physical dysfunction, and it's markedly different to other disorders, physical disorders. It's, so you've got the location, which is the eye. What's causing it is the burst blood vessels, and that is distinct from other diseases, even other diseases that are caused by burst blood vessels, like, you know, in different body parts. So it could be called a disease. But of course we don't call a black eye a disease. Yes. But it actually is one, according to some medical definitions, right? So addiction could fit in that way. It's located in the brain and manifests as behaviours, which are not good. Um, it's characterised by reward-seeking and things like that. And it is distinct, somewhat distinct, from ADHD, depression and other things, other mental health issues, although it often backs onto them and looks yes. similar to them, right? So it's, it's looking optimistic. It could be defined as a disease. Then you get someone else will come in and go, no. Um, the Lon London cab drivers have got different brains to everybody else. Yes. Because they did the knowledge and their memory uh, maps in no. their brain expanded so like massively. No, no neurons that far together. <laughs> yeah, neurons together. Are they've got a lot more neurons yeah. in certain brain yeah. areas than someone else. So mm. they've had a brain change, right? Yeah. So brain change doesn't equate to disease. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's, that's kind happening. of an argument, isn't so, it? Around and round they go, yes. bloody circles. Yes. And the reality is, neither of them could, I don't think, could con conclusively prove either way. So. Shouldn't the rest of us, especially those of us who are actually addicted and got a real problem yeah. that we've got to deal with, perhaps just evade that particular semantic? Yeah. Um, well, I think battle. we had at yeah. the beginning, didn't we, when yeah. we were kind of saying these are maps. They're maps. These are ways, and the only thing that matters is that they work. Yes, and clearly it does work for uh, you know millions of yeah. recovering addicts and And could it be the different people? Maybe maybe different types of people do better with different maps. Yeah. Well, what you do. Another good phrase to remember is take what leaves and uh, take what works and leave the rest. Mm. So there are people in AA even, which is a very traditional fellowship, who hate the disease model idea. Yeah. But does it stop them from recovering within AA? Of course not, because they just reject that bit. Yeah. <laughs> but they use a lot of the other bits of AA. Um, but most recovering addicts will tell you that yeah, the idea, at least thinking of it as though it is a disease, is very helpful. And this is why. 
the American Society of Addiction and Medicine are one of the most famous medical bodies that, that, that defined addiction as a disease. And they said that you know, they defined it as a chronic disease. Now, they may be right about that, or they may not, but guess what? It's bloody useful for but addicts. But couldn't, so, yeah, I mean, couldn't some of this basically be down to insurance? Yeah, if, if in doubt, use it until it doesn't work anymore. Yeah, but I mean, in a sense that, you know, it, for it to get into, for insurance oh, companies to pay out. Well, that is another argument as to why neither, that would more be the National Institute of Drug mm. Abuse, why they do lots of brain scans to prove yeah. addiction is a disease, because you can see this red part of the yeah. brain, is because that's the only way to get funding. Because yeah. if it was a, a crisis of the soul, then the government isn't going to fund research. Like the it, right. yeah. But back to ASAM, who are a group of doctors rather yeah. than researchers, um, they defined addiction as a chronic disease. Now, that is really helpful, regardless of whether it's true. It's a fantastic analogy, because yeah. most of us found that it doesn't go away. Yeah. Like chronic diseases, like diabetes, it seems to be permanent. So I can stop drinking, but I still have the same mindset yes. if I don't treat it. Yes. Right? So... The, the common denominator with chronic diseases is they don't, they, they're, they're incurable or they linger horribly and they require constant treatment. Yes. And then, with a lot of those illnesses, you get a remission of the symptoms. Well, most addicts look at the way they are and the way they use. It doesn't matter to them what the white codes say. It doesn't matter about researchers who found that most people just spontaneously remiss middle age and just mellow out of mm. addiction. They know that that is not true. They must have been researching a different group of people. Because I've never met one in 20 years of personal recovery and working with five to 6,000 addicts. Now, maybe it's because they're addicts, real addicts. Mm. I've never met yet a person who just chilled out in middle age and stopped doing a lot of crack. Now, I might know people who drank rather too much when they were stressed because of their marriage in their early 30s who, nobody, who no longer does. But that's not my definition necessarily of an addict. Yes. People who have serious addiction problems, what we see on the ground is that they don't just mellow out of it and change. They don't. And yet there's tons of studies that say yes. they do. So what can you do with studies? Right? <laughs> At the end of the day, if you're in recovery yourself and if you're a professional treating it, you know the reality of what you're seeing on the ground. And I would argue that as long as you're on guard for your own biases... That, that is potentially a more valuable source of information than a lot of studies. Not all studies. Some studies yes. are incredibly well done. But actually, most aren't particularly well done. And most researchers, especially in fields like addiction, actually have quite a lot of agendas. Yes. There's yes. quite a politicized field, yes. right? So we don't tend to t put too much score in that, right? So what we would do, we would look at chronic disease and we'd say, does that work for us? Does it make sense? I mean, if it's absolutely bleeding ridiculous, like... They were saying, you know, anybody who ate salmon under the age of three will become an addict. We, it's yes. nonsense, this, this medieval spooky nonsense. Yes. But if it sounds roughly like it might make sense, we look at its practical value for us. An addiction as a chronic disease makes a lot of sense to us. Yes. Because it doesn't go away even when we stop using drugs. We have to treat it or we relapse. And the treatment is behavioral. The treatment is social. It's not medicinal usually. Yes. Not yet. And when they do get a pill for it, I'm taking it. I'll be right up the front of the line because it'll be a lot easier. But I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, yeah. Ali, this has been fantastic. I, I really thank you for this. I mean, hopefully we can do it again. Perfect. Um, glad you glad you invited me. <laughs>